Welcome to Carbon Times. With the UK hosting COP26 this year, the Carbon Times podcast has been developed to get the industry talking, to share journeys, and more importantly, share knowledge. Carbon Profile has sponsored this podcast to help their clients and the wider industry learn from each other and pull together to really push the decarbonisation of the UK. We are starting with what we know best, the real estate industry. With the UK government putting their 10-point plan for the green industrial revolution in place, Carbon Times will be running podcast series to explore the topics around the 10-point plan. In series one, we begin with greener buildings, with the objective to drive better building performance and move away from fossil fuels. We know that 80% of buildings in use today will still be in use in 2050, and that real estate accounts for 40% of the UK total carbon emissions. Each series from this podcast will explore topics taking the key goals of COP26 to form the discussion. The key goals being adaptation, mitigation, finance, and collaboration. For the real estate industry, we will explore owning and managing property, green leases, tenants' obligations, the costs and the impact on property prices. We have interviewed some of the best from industry leaders, regulation setters, companies that are leading initiatives and those driving programmes to work towards the current key dates associated with the Greener Buildings Plan and the drive to net zero carbon emissions. We want to provide insight across our industry, highlighting the challenges and the ambitions. We will highlight practical examples of how industry specialists are driving change across their sphere of influence. We all have a responsibility to collaborate and develop a world-leading approach to the decarbonisation of the spaces and the places we use. My friends, the adolescence of humanity is coming to an end and must come to an end. We're approaching that critical turning point in less than two months, in just over 40 days, when we must show that we are capable of learning and maturing and finally taking responsibility for the destruction we are inflicting, not just upon our planet, but upon ourselves. Welcome to the Carbon Times podcast. This is the first episode in series one. Across this series, we will be exploring the key goals coming out of COP26 this year and how those are relevant to the real estate industry. Throughout the episodes, there'll be six episodes, and throughout those episodes, we'll be talking to real estate professionals from across the UK and beyond. Really, the reason why we started this podcast is because we want to get the industry talking. We know there is a lot to do. There's a lot of desire out there for change. And no one can do it on their own. So so really getting people talking, talking about the agenda and pulling everyone together is what we really want to achieve with this. A bit of statistics and why buildings are important in the, in the decarbonisation agenda and you know across the UK. One, it's been called out by the UK government as one of the key um, 10 points to decarbonisation is decarbonisation of real estate. And we know that 80% of buildings that are in use today will still be in use in 2050. And 40% of UK emissions are caused by our buildings at present. So it's it's a big contributor. We are very lucky today to be joined by David Tudor Morgan. Um, David has had a long career in the real estate industry, and I won't um, 
I won't try and, and, and give you any details about his career. I'll hand you straight over to David, if you could just introduce yourself for us, David. Oh, yeah. Th- thanks for that introduction. Um, yeah, it's, it's great to be here. Um, I've spent most of my career at British Land, so FTSE 100 property owner. Um, I was running the retail operations uh, across the UK there. And I was always passionately, personally and professionally really uh, you know, involved in the sustainability agenda there. And this was at a time where there was no talk of, of carbon really or, or net zero or anything like that. It was it was kind of way before um, all these things now that we sort of really just take for, for granted. And we were sort of involved very early on um, and we did a lot in this space and um, we experimented, some things worked and some things didn't, but it was great. And I think one of my proudest memories of my time there was when British Land was awarded the Queen's Award for Enterprise, which recognises over a long period of time, five years, you know, the impact that the company had, had made. Um, more recently, I've been doing interim roles and consulting roads, roles for both landlords um, and also occupiers. And those range from very small um, companies to, to, to much larger ones. So it's been really interesting to get a much wider perspective um, of some of the challenges that the, the smaller and medium-sized companies, as well as the larger ones, face as well. Great. Thanks very much. It is fascinating, really, how the agenda has snowballed, really, over the last five years, I'd say, you know, more than anything else, and how important it's become to so many people and so many organisations. But one of the challenges I see out there is that everybody has a desire and lots of people want to get there, but actually making the decisions, what can we actually do? And, and then putting that into action is, is where a lot of the difficulties sit at the moment. From your experience, we've got a big challenge here that between landowners, landlords, tenants, different types of organisations, there's so many people involved that can drive the agenda. Where do you think that sits or, or what sectors do you think are the most important to be able to drive this agenda forward? I think where this lies is it's all about collaboration and working together. And if you go back to the property sector 20 years ago, um, you know, when I sort of started getting involved with it um, and taking sustainability out of this, it was very much the landlord on one side of the, the room. Um, and it was the, the tenant at the time, now the, the customer, who probably wasn't even in the room. There was probably an intermediary who would sit in the middle. There wasn't really an understanding of each other's businesses or, or where they wanted to go. And I think that has totally shifted, um, rightly so, so that the landlord and customer or tenant are now working together. They have to find mutual success. Leases are shorter. And that relationship is key to understanding how they can both support each other. And that's not, I mean, that's on a sustainability level, but on a much higher strategic level as well. And where that plays into, I think, if we drop into sustainability and environmental, that then that's you can't do one without the other. So yes, the landlord will potentially in the shell of a shopping centre or office campus, but actually that there's a occupier customer within a space as well. So the two have got to work together, and I think that that's great both environmentally uh, for net zero, uh, but also commercially for both parties as well. It is it is really interesting how the industry has started to change and how we're you know we're starting to see those changes come through with with the activity that we do with our clients and how that that collaborative piece is getting better but i still feel there's a there's a whole lot to do a, a, a around getting those conversations going and I, I i think there are some sectors that 
are really leading the way and really driving, you know, driving mm. the agenda. I think fintech is one, you know, the space that they that that, that those types of organisations are taking up. They're very very strict on on you know the type of space that they occupy because they've got a workforce. I think that really you know drives that agenda into into what they want and what they where the space that they want to occupy for the, for themselves as well which which again is is a is a really interesting piece but some other industries i feel have a lot more to do around the actual question and, and how to get there retail i think is one that that i think is is lagging quite a bit um what's your experience with retail to date in the last i don't know over the last five years that change yeah, I, I think it, I agree. Um, it, it, there are some who are ahead of it. And I think you've got to look at what are the drivers for doing it. If you go back 10, 15 years, um, you know, investors were starting to influence this. Um, you know, the, the larger companies are probably the ones who, who started on this journey, uh, partly because they wanted to, but partly because they had to because of the um, presence and, and the, the, the status they have. Um, I think when you then drop it, down more recently, it's the sort of SMEs, it's the smaller companies who are saying, look, we want to do this, but we don't really know where to start. Um, and I think it's much harder for them. If you're a big FTSE company, you, you can justify having an environmental team who are experts who can help you or who can partner with people. I think for, for smaller companies, they now want to do it because that they buy into it um, personally. Um, you know, their children are probably starting to influence this. It, it's just the right thing to do on many levels. But I think for them, it's how do they get involved? And where do they start? And that's that should be easy. Um, but I've seen with the quite a bit of the interim and consulting I've done over the last couple of years is there's lots of companies who just they don't know where to start. And then suddenly all the terminology of, well, is it net zero or is it carbon neutral or is it 2040? Should it be 2035? Is it 2050? How, how do we do all this is, is really hard. And some of us, you know, I, to an extent, I take it for granted because I've been doing it for so long and I, I've kind of learned, you know, how and where to start. But I think for many, it, it's really challenging. And then if you take the retail as a specific example, yeah, I think that's, it's a real opportunity and challenge for them. Ultimately, the customers are a huge vote and a huge voice and a huge influence. And I think that is massively driving it. You then talk about, well, how do they do it? Well, you've potentially got some of the bigger landlords. Again, there's great partnerships and collaboration that both can do. So they're both mutually winning environmentally, but also delivering on some of these initiatives. And that's that's going to be, um, I think they'll push those two companies together. I think there's some really good points in there, especially around the, the external influences. Even my own, you know, having worked in, in like compliance and sustainability for, you know, for a long time, even my own mindset has been influenced over the last few years by my own children. You know, my, my children are in their 20s and the agenda means something different to that generation, I think, than it did, you know, when, when we were of a, of a similar age. You know, it, it's a really good thing to see. But also those other external drivers like the customer, the general public, you know, all of all of those kind of messaging. I mean, we see every day on the news at the moment that, you know, with Insulate Britain, that you've got people, you know, disrupting the UK based on the, you know, a similar agenda, really, at the end of the day, it's, it's just all around that same piece. So, so there's a lot of, a lot of influence that that's out there. I mean, the government play a really key role in this. And 
they've dabbled in bits and they've tried to drive the agenda and and some of the some of it's been quite successful you know the the driving out of f and g's around the leases you know has been a really good uh, sorry on the epc ratings has been a a really good tool or a really good starting point i guess to be able to do that and the upcoming you know regulations around all commercial properties needing to be bambi by 2030 is you know again going to really drive that agenda but do you feel the government are doing enough where they are or is there more areas they could be driving change? I think that there's always more that we can all be doing. And that includes me personally in my home. It includes the companies we work for and it includes the government. So I think we all could and should be doing more in this space. But I, th- I think a lot of this, the sort of carrot and stick feels, you know, this sort of sensible approach um, for me and, and incentivizing people, helping them training uh, that that side of things I, I think are really key but yeah i think you know the, the more the government can do the better they've got a very strong leadership position obviously they're doing more than many countries but equally there's a lot we can learn globally and you know, if you look at australia there's some fantastic lessons that, that we can take from them but ultimately i think that the the voice of the consumer the customer the people our children as you say they are a huge, huge influence on this. So I think it's there's there's a top down, but there's also a bottom up, which is you know quite exciting. Yeah, it does really speak volumes the fact that that everybody's having the same conversations. I think having COP twenty six in the UK this year is going to be a really key thing as well. But we need to wait and see how successful that is. You know, you can read. I read only this morning. You know, the skeptics are out there already saying that. China are saying they're not going to attend. So will it be successful? Will it, will it, you know, will it achieve any tangible outcomes from it? That type of event and that type of approach. What what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I think it's really valuable. Um, and I think having the right people at the table for these conversations is it, it always adds to the weight of it and the influence of it. But I think it, it's great we're hosting. It's fantastic. It's really exciting. And I think it it drives that leadership at a UK level. It puts it on the news. It, you know, children will be talking about it in lessons. Companies will be talking about it at a boardroom level, um, and and people just day to day will be thinking about it. And I think that's that's hugely powerful. But that collaboration piece, because this isn't something as the UK we can do. If you look at the data on a per capita basis, actually we're we're, we're relatively low. Um, but I think leadership. And having that that voice to influence at a global level is, is is really important. Yeah, I think showing to the world as well that you know over a hundred global leaders will come together and have that conversation and talk about you know what's important and see if they can come out with some some tangible objectives. I mean, the Paris Agreement that came out was you know not successful everywhere, but was a really good move and and started to get everybody, you know, moving in the same direction and having the same conversation. So I'm really hopeful that that's what will drive out of the COP26 situation. In terms of the collaborative piece that I guess we always need to go back to that point, right? That money is needed to be made for all of this to work. Okay. So people don't invest build own buildings for their own you know altruistic kind of you know desires it's it's it, the whole world re- revolves around us being able to to you know provide things that people want and and make money from that so there are going to be dents in the profit around this investment piece because there is investment required so where is the easiest place do you see that or you know is that an impossible question to answer yeah, I think it's probably one of the biggest challenges. I wouldn't say it's impossible. I think it's one of the biggest challenges is to 
how you simplistically demonstrate a return on investment. Uh, and there's lots of different returns. Um, I'm not just talking about financial, I'm talking about environmental, economic, social. Um, th there's so much to it. And I think any company who's not looking at long-term sustainability will not be lined up to succeed long-term. So there'll be some very tough decisions which need to be made, uh, but financially it's challenging. And if you, if you sort of break that down, you, you, you've got potentially a, a customer or a tenant who, who's in a space, a landlord space for maybe three or five years. Now, 20 years ago, they would have had a 20-year lease, 15-year lease, or maybe even longer. So they're in for a much shorter period of time, potentially. Um, that makes the capital expenditure difficult to justify if they're looking at a particular shop that's picking up on your retail from earlier. That's quite hard. Um, to suddenly make it stack up um, on the bigger projects, which may, might make a lot more difference. A lot of people will have taken the low-hanging fruit and they'll have delivered this sort of relatively easy initiatives, but it, it's, it's taking it up to that bigger piece. But again, that pulls us back to say, well, this is all about collaboration. Um, and it, it unites the, the, the landlord in the property sector with their customer, their tenant, um, to work together to find something that's mutually acceptable. And as, you know, again, retailers, as it becomes more and more important to their DNA and their, their culture, and look, that, that's what customers or their customers will be buying into, that they want to understand what that company is about. Um, they are going to be driving this agenda and saying, well, look, if we're taking a, an office space or a unit, um, then we've got to be aligned to a partner, a landlord who shares our values and shares our, our you know, what we want from uh, you know, to, to make a bigger impact. And I think, again, that, that kind of unites the two together. So those landlords, those tenants who, who are aligned, they will invest in this space together and they'll have that mutual benefit. I think that leaves a tail of a lot of people who, who a lot of space potentially, which won't be delivering what we need environmentally. And I think that's probably the biggest challenge. It's, I've seen some some you know some fascinating examples recently where you can really see that collaboration working and being driven. So you know areas where someone that owns a space will will if they're taking their space back to to shell, then they'll they'll make it a, a minimum standard at shell, and then their lease arrangement means that whoever's coming into that space can only improve on it. You know that's that's the the mandate if you like from it that that you know you can only take on that space if what you do with it improves the efficiency rating that it already has which is you know which is a great thing to see and then on the flip side i've heard of tenants saying well there's an exemption that if the landlord you know if we don't grant access to the landlord then there'll be an exemption from the means regulations so they're minded to phone all their landlords and say you can't have access to our space which that's an approach i guess it's it's in my opinion in the entirely wrong approach but but the the kind of conversations that i think those people need to be hearing as well is again around pressure groups and stuff like that you know all of all of this information is public information so if people don't get their you know themselves into the right position everybody's going to know about it and i don't think people are going to be able to hide which again i think is a is a, is a really good really good thing do you think that kind of public naming and shaming is is a is a good way of going about this yeah i, I think openness and transparency for any business it is really important ultimately consumers customers are, are working buying from working in spaces and they want to trust they want to have in, know that that company's got integrity 
Um, I'm a huge supporter of, of benchmarking, openness, transparency, and setting you know targets. Which sometimes when you set them, you just you don't know how you're going to achieve them, but you know that actually having that stretch target is going to push you. You're not going to hit 100 in everything, uh, but that's okay. That's fine. Um, I think it adds to the sort of validity of it. Going back to the tenant or customer landlord type relationship, have you seen significant changes in that relationship over the last five years that they, they, I mean, from my experience, in some cases, there is a, a desire to do things collaboratively, you know, pay half and half as long as the return on investment is is demonstrated and, and easy to, you know, to, to put your finger on. I've also seen changes like tenants being when they're looking for space, being far more demanding on 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 the landlord, on what they want that space to be like and how they want it to perform and what type of improvements they want to see over those years. Do you have you seen similar changes or, or what type of industry changes have you seen over the last five years? Yeah, I, th- I think that is a big challenge of how, how you integrate, you know, sort of shared objectives, really. Um, and that's it is harder, I think it's almost where does sustainability sit within different companies so my ideal for any company landlord or retailer or office operator is there isn't or almost isn't a separate team it's just part of everyone's day job and their dna and one of the challenges you'll have is if you're agreeing a deal on space either acting for a landlord or customer tenant then how much is that person where is it on their personal agenda um, so yes, that company may well have a, a, a clear vision where they want to go, where the chief exec goes, but you've got to embed that that culture and those values and those that strategy right through um, everything that they do. And the risk is you might have someone who's saying, well, look, I just want to get this deal for as cheap as possible. I want to pay as little rent as possible. But ultimately, as you say, someone's got to benefit from the commercial investment that, that's made. Uh, because some of this you know, short term won't deliver a return, a financial return that it needs to. And as you say, that ultimately to, to make that company sustainable, so it can be sustainable in an environmental way, it's got to be sustainable financially too. So I think that the, the challenge really is around how do you get everyone bought into the vision and strategy environmentally so that when they are doing a deal, there is a certain amount that is allocated to say, well, look, this, this may be costing slightly more, but it's giving us this benefit. And that's you know that that's a that's a challenge because the, the financially you want to drive as much income as you you can. Yeah, I think um, this feels like something that's that's going to become exactly that. It's going to become more entrenched in our in our everyday thoughts, and and I feel that it's quite similar. If you go back, you know, twenty years and look at health and safety across the the world, you know, across mm. sorry across the commercial world, you know, like in in all aspects that. Everyone knew it was the right thing to do to protect your employees, and and were, but the same problems existed then that it was somebody's responsibility to sit there and do it, but it wasn't integrated across the organisations. But I think, you know, if you go, I don't, building sites are a great example. I mean, growing up in a in an Irish family, we used to go to work with dad on a Saturday morning. You know, like so, I remember, you know, seven eight years old turning up to construction sites in London, my dad would open the car door, we'd run out and go and play in the construction site because that's what you did back in those days, you know, whereas now you can't even get close to a construction site because quite rightly, they're all fenced off and have stark warnings outside, et cetera. You know, so that that change gives me hope for the future and gives me, you know, hope that 
it will be driven through all areas of of businesses the same as you know it becomes second nature doesn't it like the whole gdpr thing that we've gone through over the last you know few years that that was a nightmare when it first came out but you know now everybody speaks the same language around it and and when you're conversing business to business that point always comes up so everyone's got used to it really quickly i think this one's more in more difficult because obviously then it goes back to cost and it goes back to you know where where does where does the pound sit and cost is a really good point i think that's where i feel that the industry needs to to take a bit of a change um i like i like some of the messaging that's come out from boris johnson recently especially around some of the speeches that he's given the speech he gave in america I, it sits with me really well i don't know whether I, you know just because it made me chuckle mm. a little bit but the you know telling us all that we need to grow up as uh, as a commercial world you know in some this needs to happen and it needs to be paid for so we need to stop talking about it we need to actually get on and do it you know and then admitting that he, previously he's been a skeptic in the in the agenda but now he really understands the importance, you know, and and the responsibility that sits with us with us all to do it. So, what what key changes do you think influential people can drive through the real estate industry that will that will really help this agenda? Yeah, I, I think it's key, and I think you know, Boris saying I think was a, it's time for humanity to grow up. I mean, it's it's a bold call, but it, and it's a great headline, but it does kind of it, it does grab your attention and it does make you you think, um, and I think that's really good. I think. Yeah, it, there's a top down, but there's also a bottom up. And I think the two are sort of starting to meet. So you've got, yes, you've got leadership of companies. Um, you know, you've got BlackRock you know, with Investor Letter, you know, the, the chief exec of that writing and saying, look, this is this is the two are intrinsically linked. Those who are environmentally sustainable will be financially sustainable. So you, you've got chief execs of the, the, the doers um doing it you've got the prime minister talking about it you've got investors saying actually that this is really important to us and then at, at the flip side you, you've got the school children now where this is just this is just so part of their lives you know schools have got well-being and environmental councils mm. so that they're talking about it and it's starting to kind of pull together in a big way um, you know you've got greta you've got other university students a very very strong voice in doing a lot of this. And I think that that will have a huge weight and a huge voice. Uh, and ultimately, if, if people make the decision to say, look, we're only going to align to certain brands, to certain companies where we share, where we agree with their values, and that that will be around environmentalism, one of the key drivers, then again, the, the, the voice, the influence of that is huge because then that links to being financial. That look, I'm only going to buy from these companies where I can, because they're environmentally, you know, a strong uh, credentials and they actually buy into this. It's not greenwashed, but they're genuine with it. So I, I think never underestimate the, 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 the power of the consumer to, to make a difference. And that will start with one and then it will grow. Um, and that's a huge opportunity for, for you know, everyone to make a difference. But I think, yeah, the leadership, the country is, is, is key and the, the leadership of a lot of um, large companies is key. I think there's a real challenge, though, for many smaller, medium companies who potentially want to do this stuff, but they just don't know where to start with it. Mm. And as you sort of dig into it, 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 the terminology, the lack of consistency with some of the frameworks and benchmarking and, well, what exactly is included in my scope three um, credentials? Yeah. Um, and why is that different for for 
this and that sector, I, I think a lot of that can add to confusion. And once you sort of build in that, it, it, it starts to become quite daunting. So I think moving to a consistent approach makes it more accessible. And the more accessible it is, the more people will follow it. Um, and I think the whole data piece of benchmarking and transparency, which we touched on earlier, is, is key to doing that. But it's got to be on a consistent methodology, you know, as you would with an accounting regulation. Consistency is a really good point as well, because, you know, anecdotally, you you hear from time to time that things like EPCs aren't worth the paper they're written on. You know, it's it's and, and that type of messaging that goes out, which is you can't argue with in some certain circumstances. But that's because it's I guess the EPC world grew really fast out of the requirements. But that was mainly the government threw a lot of funding at people, you know, to get them back into work and to get them onto the assessments but the regulation around the industry i think wasn't quite right so you know there's there's been a number of cases you know you hear drive by epcs and all that kind of stuff for 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 example however you know being involved in that world and 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 using epcs as the tool to be able to to provide that baseline information i think is is really good it's a really good tool to be able to do things well once you've established your baseline however it's convincing everyone that's had a negative experience that yes you know it is a good tool and it is the right way to do it but it's the same with any industry isn't it like a small tiny little sect of of badness can drive you know the whole opinion down which is which is disappointing really from that point of view the the knowing where to go is really important i think and helping people to understand that looking at science-based targets, looking at the, the the UN Council's goals, you know, all of all of those key things which which give some some credibility and give some guidance on on how this should be done. I think the other area that people need to really get better at understanding is the contributory benefits that that looking at sustainability and that agenda actually drives through an organization. So that cultural thing that you talked about earlier in terms of you know that sustainability being important it then heightens the environmental agenda, but all of that then leads to health and well-being and it leads to that a whole connected piece, you know, around there's so much evidence out there around people living in green spaces and, you know, how that all works together and, and contributes together. So it is a big shift in mindset, I think. Do you feel there's a gap there that at a certain level, people don't really see that all of the benefits that come out of, uh, of just attacking the sustainability agenda? Uh, yeah, really good question. I think there are there are almost bonuses and things that come out that you won't expect. So you kind of think, well, look, why are we doing this? And everyone will have slightly different drivers. And yes, you know, some of the well-being comes out of it, which is huge. Um, you know, if you can deliver the environmental side, then actually the, the well-being will, will kind of grow and be embedded as, as, as part of that. Uh, but you're probably, it, it, it's almost a, a sort of bonus that, that comes out. Um, and if you look at, you know, green spaces, natural light, you know, getting the right temperature of spaces where people are spending their time in. All of this stuff makes a huge difference. Um, but we never did it for that. It's just kind of happened as a, as, as part of it. So, yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of um, synergy between the two. I think just picking up on one of your slightly earlier points on EPCs, um, having gone through this and instructed thousands of EPCs, um, if not tens of thousands over the years, you can almost go for the cheapest possible, mm -hmm. but when you pay peanuts, you get monkeys um, and you just won't get the quality of data. 
And having made mistakes around this space, you won't get something that that is reliable. It won't give you insights. Um, and I think you know, getting the right quality is is absolutely critical. Finding you know partners who can provide that um, and then help you with it because it's one thing getting that EPC that data to say, look, this is good, and here are your here are your challenges. But then, what do you do with it? And I think finding someone who who can kind of link those two through. So if you've got questions and you want to interrogate it, then you you've got that incredibility and integrity of that data um, lines you up to succeed. And if you go too cheap um, and you don't get the quality, then actually you're just going to trip yourself up further down the line. Um, and that's a mistake um, I made um, quite a long time ago. And there's there's a, there's a sweet spot in the middle of just finding someone who's aligned to you and who's there, who's going to help you because getting the EPC is just the, the first step of, uh, of that journey. And I think there's some really good points there, especially around the quality of data. And that is what we see as the, the kind of key to this and making sure that the people that are out there collecting the data are doing it properly. They, you know, they understand the importance of the data that they're looking at and the data that they're collecting. They understand the sources of where to get that data from. They understand even the questions to ask, you know, who to ask the questions of and make sure those questions are right to make sure that we capture as much data as possible. So the planning process then is is aligned and it becomes more cost effective in that space because you're you're properly aligned to being able to do that. It's also a surety, I think, that that's what that's what some organizations are really looking for out of this, where you know, we've we've had circumstances where people have come to us and said, Can you do an EPC on this? Yeah, sure. We go out and we do it. It comes out as let's say a D for argument's sake. And they come back to us and say, Well, we don't understand why it's a D because our design pack, you know, at last design freeze says that it was anticipated to be a B. So why is it a D? You know, and then we have to explain that well, you made the wrong decisions as you went through that. You know, had you have not done that, but done this, then, yeah, you would have got your B, you know, and it, it's that kind of process, I think, where, there, where there's a little bit of disconnect still. So being involving the right data sources and the right decision making around that from the earliest stages is 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 a really key part around this you know having energy professionals involved not only in the in the design phase but in that you know in that decision making around equipment specifications you know types of material that you're going to be using and all of those those additional aspects are are really driving that and um, yeah i agree and i think that, you know, a lot of this is much easier for for big companies because they, they can justify the resource and i think the big opportunity in the bit where it's, it's really hard is, is for those sort of smes really and how, how do they find partnerships to work with people who, who can advise them and help them and i think the you know again the the, the lessons that i've learned is, is involving them much much earlier than you think you need to pays dividends down the line bringing them in right at the end suddenly it, it's kind of too late and then you end up having to retrofit um and incur more cost it slows the process down as a landlord worst case you can't let it um so i think it is again it's, it comes back to partnerships and finding you know good, good partners you know who, who you can work with what i've also found is almost the the less you pay for an epc actually the worst the, the grading of it is <laughs> because they don't ask they, they, they don't ask the questions and really get to the bottom of, of kind of why and what and how um so ironically, it feels like a cost saving, but a lot of the time it it, it often isn't. So the opposite um, happens. Yeah, it's it's weird, isn't it? It's the same 
the same thing. But I think we've grown up in an industry where cost has always been king. That part of that is is, and I think that's where some of this shift is still to come. You know that that we're still in the position where you design a program, you design something, and it goes to cost, and then value cost takes a lot out of of what you might be able to achieve. So, I think getting carbon. And cost on the same line when on mm. decision making is a is a really key aspect to that. What what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Um, I think it, it comes down to long term sustainability. This isn't just short term, and they, yeah, that's one of the challenges that all companies have got. And I think you know public companies it's harder because you, you've you've got to show continuous performance. You've got to report your results every six months, every year. So for them, it, it's there's different challenges. Um, you know, there are some companies who can take a much longer term view. Mm. Um, and it's interesting, you know, the university sector, again, they can take a 40, 50 year view. Um, you know, there's a, there's a lovely old story about one of the Oxford colleges that, um, you know, when they built their roof for, for their formal hall about three, 400 years ago, their sustainability strategy was to, to plant a forest um, in Oxfordshire because they said, look, this forest is going to take 300 years to, to, to grow. And then we'll be able to use those trees to, to replace the roof because we know this roof will only last 300 years. So I, I think this is this has always been around, um, but it but it's 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 changed um, what, what it means. But it's taking, but there aren't many who can take such a nice 300 year view. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. <laughs> there's so there's there's probably a bit of work for for our for you know for industry professionals to do with the world of cost, isn't there? And around maybe you know getting to getting to those people and helping them to to have the right the right decisions around that that offsetting piece, if you like, is is really important, uh, really interesting, and really fascinating. Having you know undertaken a lot of research in before starting this podcast, that there's some fascinating examples around the world of fully sustainable buildings and and how they're using different technologies to be able to do it. There's a great example in um, in Germany of a of a hotel that's recently been built where it's got a concrete slab, you know, so there's a lot of embedded carbon in that. But to offset that, they've built the hotel out of wood you know so it's an entire timber structure and the amount of timber that was sequestered into that offsets the the slab so i think the numbers were something like it was 400 cubic tons of of, of carbon that are in the slab but it was 880 cubic tons of carbon that have been sequestered by the materials so it was you know it's a really fascinating way of being able to do that 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 whole thing around offsetting I mean, it kind of gives me chills when I hear organisations talking about one of their long-term objectives is to is offsetting. But what's your experience around that? Yeah, I, I think it is. It, it is one of those slightly grey areas, isn't it? it, it it's it's challenging. And I think there are some times where financial viability will mean that actually you will get to that point where actually it's a, it's a much cleaner and clearer point where you get to you just say look it just doesn't that that is natural but yes you're right i mean it's there are times where you just feel actually is this is this just almost a greenwash and are you just are you buying carbon neutral because you want to have that as a sort of pr statement and again i think it it feels like it comes back to the whole integrity of of making this part of everyone's day-to-day you know a belief and a value for the company um, anyone can just buy carbon offsets um, yeah. and get to carbon neutral. But actually, 
it, it's just it, it's fudging it really. And I think having a, a standard around, you know, when that when you get to that point and having the audit and the independence, the integrity of it, I think will become more and more important. That's um I think there's a there's an accreditation out there that's needed, isn't there, somewhere, I think. We've kicked around an idea around, you know, band B certification and being able to mm. to certify that an organization is in the right state to be able to achieve and maintain that status you know so they are contributing towards the you know the the the, the removal of greenhouse gases from the uk which is you know a, an ultimate requirement of the government so i found that really interesting being you know having having that that sort of conversation with people which has been really good um okay so I think we'll draw the conversation to an end. Something I'd be really interested to hear. If you could have lunch with Mr. Johnson tomorrow and say, you know, and you you knew you could come out of that meeting having influenced his mind, what sort of conversation would that be? For me, it would be about keeping this on the on the front pages. And it's not about having it as something that is separate from everything else. It has to be integrated into everything we do. And every policy that he's looking at, this has to be integrated into it. It doesn't sit as something separate to, to anyone's day job or any policy. And if it's integrated into all of it, as you said, with carbon and cost in the same thing, then actually this can be sustainable. And um, so that would be my, my push for him is to, uh, yeah, have it as, as part of everything that he's doing, not just as a, a separate strategy. I suppose that as a, as a kind of parting point, that would be a, that would be a general message we should be giving out to everybody, shouldn't it? That, you know, keep this at the front of your agenda when you're having business planning meetings, make sure it's on the agenda, just make sure that we keep the conversation going. Yeah, and I think that will give a financial return as well as an environmental return. Um, and, you know, the, the two together, it will build long-term sustainability, both for the planet, but also for, for companies, for investors investing in that company, for people shopping in that company. Um, it truly feels like one of those, those win-wins. Excellent. Well, I know you're a busy man, so thank you very much for your time. It's really, really appreciated. And, you know, having people to talk to that are on the same page in terms of, you know, showing that passion about, about the agenda and, and helping really influence the people around you to, to do the right thing and make the right decisions. It's, it's really nice to see. Yeah, great. Well, we can, we can all do it. We can all play our part. So let's go do it. Excellent. Thank you very <laughs> Thanks much, a lot. David.